0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and uh, get ready to study God's Word. Uh, A special thanks for you guys that are new to uh, Bent Tree. And after the service, I would love to meet you. I'll be right outside the door there. And... uh, you can be turning to John chapter 6. Hell, I can't believe uh, we're getting to hit John chapter 6 together. This is something that I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, John chapter 6. Near the end of the gospel, as the apostle John is wrapping up, uh, he says this. He tells his purpose in writing John in verse 30 and 31 of John 20. He says, I write these things so that you may believe and have life in his son. John tells us that Jesus performed many other miracles and signs in the presence of disciples that are not written in the book of John, but these are written. He says, so that you may believe the Messiah, that he is the son of God, and by believing may have a life in his name. One of the structures that we see Throughout the gospel, it lays out in the gospel is seven signs or seven miracles he performs. John calls these signs instead of miracles. And the key to understanding how John is going to be different from the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And like John tells us in in verse 30, Jesus performs many other miracles through his earthly ministry. The apostle doesn't cover the other miracles like those other gospels do because he, or does, uh, because he wants us to focus on and see something very special in these seven key signs. He calls these miracle signs because they point to Jesus specifically in how they are performed. The goal of John, like he says, is that once we discover the truth of Jesus' true identity, he's saying so that you would believe and be saved. Or as John says it, so that we may have life in the name of Jesus. I've been so ready to get back to the Gospel of John as we began working our way through the gospel of john verse by verse there's some powerful things in chapter six someone recently asked me they said paul how long do you think it will take to get through john six and i said god willing we should be done sometime before christmas notice i did not say which christmas that is (laughs) certainly not this christmas It's simply a way to say, I don't know how long it will take us to get uh, there. But the point is, I don't want us to miss any of the good things of John. Because the more we know Jesus, the better we can follow him. Amen? What we're looking for is the truth of God and how we can go deeper in understanding and deeper in relationship with Jesus Well, I can't wait to get started, but let's pray together. Let's ask God uh, uh, just for his blessing on this time of worship and this time of preaching as we study God's word. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a family. Mm. God, thanking you for the opportunity to be able to have your words. God, you didn't have to give us anything, and yet you gave us this wonderful book, We pray that you would be glorified as we uh, understand who you are and that you would give us life. Um, God, for uh, these servants here, that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. As we understand these words, show us how to apply them today. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we all prayed and said, Amen. Amen. Well, it's a long chapter, right? 71 verses, but like always, let's take it slow, let's take it steady, let's mine it for all the richness that's there. Now, here's my plan. There are five scenes in chapter 6, each one unique, and yet they all fit together perfectly to tell this new aspect of who Jesus is as the Son. And like the pre three previous signs we've studied, this fourth sign that we're going to study starts out with a miracle and then comes to a conflict. Jesus will use that conflict to reveal some deeper things about himself. Now, last time the conflict was with the religious leaders of the Jews, but this time's different. Let's not uh, get too far ahead of ourselves, though. It may take us a while to get to the end. Of the seven miracles that the Apostle John points out as signs, though, three have to do with healing, like the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Two have to do with demonstrating Jesus' power over the natural realm, like turning water into wine. And one has to do with Jesus' power over life and death. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And But this one that we're going to look at today is literally going to affect thousands and thousands. If you're able, would you stand with me in reverence as we read our main passage from God's Word? And if you're new, just a little inside info for you. Don't want to surprise you. When I'm done reading the passage, you'll know because I'll say this is the Word of God and our people will say then thanks be to God. It's a little bit long, this passage, so bang, uh, hang with me and, and uh, listen closely. Starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Here it is. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Pharisees, a Jewish festival, was near... So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd following, uh, coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little bread. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, and what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that there is nothing wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, truly this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God. To God. You may be seated. Although we read the whole section of the passage here, let's do some basic information before we jump in. Let's look at verse 1 there in your own Bible or up here. It says this, after this, this is important, underline after this, after this Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberius. that's the other name for it. Here's what you need to know from the end of chapter 5 that we spent so long on to the start of chapter 6. A full year has passed and a lot has taken place. Although John doesn't tell us, we can know from other gospels that some of the year uh, what it is held for Jesus and his disciples. First, we know from March, Mark 6 that Jesus had sent his 12 disciples on their own preaching, uh, getting little towns ready for Jesus to come. He had sent him out on this missionary journey. Second, while the disciples were gone, we know uh, from Matthew 11 then that Jesus spent that entire time, time preaching, going from town to town, doing miracles, these signs in each little place. From place to place, town to town, preaching and teaching. They all went. As chapter 6 opens, it had been a year of exhausting ministry where well, they were going on this year. Jesus takes this... Uh, takes them to this place where he's going today for a little R&R, little rest and relaxation. It's been a tough year of ministry. It was to be a refueling time before ministry began again. Jesus could teach them more and kind of do a little bit of debriefing what they had seen and heard on their travels. And then, Third, Jesus and his disciples really needed this R&R because they had received some devastating news on this trip that John the Baptist, their close friend, had been arrested and had been executed. Skip down to verse 3 if you would. Skip verse 2 for just a minute. We'll come back to that. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down. There with his disciples, Jesus leads them to a desolate place by the Sea of Galilee. To be alone from the crowds, and they find a nice place to camp, maybe make a campfire, but they weren't alone very long. They weren't alone very long because. Here's what happens. Verse 2, go back. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. What we find in Mark 6, literally, is people start running from all over when they hear Jesus is in the area. The news had spread because of his fame of this last year. And he was huge. Because we read in verse 10, John tells us that there are 5,000 men there. That's a big crowd, right? But that doesn't really capture the whole picture because it doesn't include women and children. So experts tell us the number is probably somewhere between a low end 20,000 and a high end 25,000. They're just streaming in. Now, why are there so many people? Two big reasons. One is on this tour of teaching and prof- preaching and performing these miracles, particularly miracles of healing, Jesus had become this prophetic rock star. Previous to this tour, Jesus had really just been in that northern part of Galilee on the other side of the lake, and then had been in Jerusalem in the southern part, and then with a short stopover in Samaria. But after this year, this tour, he had been everywhere. I told the team that reviews my sermons, I thought I wanted to sing that song, I've been everywhere, man, that Johnny Cash song. But I couldn't make any of those Hebrew words fit in that, so we won't do that. The second reason there were so many people is found in uh, John 6, verse 4. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, this is important, was near It's coming up on the time of the Jewish Passover. Each year, several thousand, several hundred thousand Jewish folks would make their annual trek up to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover festival. So as people had seen Jesus come to their town and had seen him do miracles and preach, they want more. They know he must be the man the Messiah, so on their trip to Jerusalem, as the roads are packed and the people are coming along the way, rumor spreads along the grapevine. Jesus is close by, so the people trek to see him. Now we'll see this later on in the chapter, but you need to get a glimpse of this now. The crowd was not coming to see Jesus because they had placed their faith in Christ. No. They were, there was no repentance there being described. There was no love for Jesus being described in this crowd. The real reason they're coming to find Jesus is because what he could do for them. They wanted something from him. They had seen him heal the sick. We see this today, don't we? People who want what Jesus can do for them, but they are not interested in Jesus himself. They want gifts that Jesus offers, but they don't want the giver. They don't want him. It's like this crowd who flocks to see Jesus' words, uh, hear him preach. They're coming by the thousands, but then they refuse to accept the words and believe that he is who he claims to be as the Messiah. They sought the benefits of Jesus in their physical lives, but not in their spiritual lives. They're spiritually dead. Now that's not surprising, is it? Because what do we know about people who are not saved by faith in Christ Jesus? They're spiritually dead. They are spiritually dead. so they think think about this. what Jesus they just think about what Jesus can do for them. In the right here and right now. So here is Jesus and his 12 disciples trying to get some rest and recoup from this last year. This is a mountainous area, very mountainous. So everything's on about a 45 degree angle. You can kind of picture that in your mind. Down to the lake down there, the Sea of Galilee. They are on this hillside overlooking the lake. There's this crowd starting to stream in, coming on all the little hillsides. Then look at verse five. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now we know from Mark six that he just taught them as well. This place is not close to town. When these travelers Travel to Jerusalem on their annual trek. They would take a little water, uh, and they would go from each place and stop and buy food along the way, kind of like when we, what we do and when get, we get gas. Uh, we'll stay, you go. They pull off the exit. There's a McDonald's. That's what they would do. They would get their stuff. So when Jesus asked, "Where will they buy bread so that these people can eat?" So when Jesus asks, where will we buy bread for them to eat? Now remember, when Jesus asks you a question, he's not looking for information. He's asking Philip specifically because he wants you or Philip to know something. But notice all the other disciples they are listening in. It's a little huddle, right? They're like all these thousands. Jesus, here's the quarterback. But instead of giving the play like the quarterback is supposed to do, he said, hey, guys. How we going to feed these guys? That's not what Jesus is supposed to say. They think they, He's supposed to give them the answer, then they go run the play, right? That's how Jesus teaches, though. He lets his followers see the problem, face it and say what they're going to do. Now, if this crowd, we know is 20 to 25,000, we're going to need to get some semis rolling in here with some food, right? I mean, that's several semi-loads of food. God is sovereign. Nothing is left to chance in this encounter. Look, Jesus has set this up with this encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. Just like that. You remember how he set that up just like the woman at the well in Samaria? He set this up. His disciples, they are worn out. They are out of gas. They are in a remote place. For the last 12 months, Jesus' disciples have been facilitating Jesus coming to towns, getting ready for him to preach. But now, Jesus, how can you ask this right now? Talk about an overwhelming feeling. If I'd been there, I'm afraid I would have been saying, really, Jesus? Really? You want us to do this now? Jesus... Why show compassion on these people right now? Let them go get their own stuff. Now, why, ask the, G, why does Jesus ask them to feed this crowd? They're not going to die. Just send them away. Let them get their own food. But here's the truth. I want us to see here. Write this down. Jesus often asks us to accomplish something for him far beyond our ability. So that we have to rely totally on him. Please get this. Jesus often asks us to accomplish something for him far beyond our ability. So that we have to rely on him. Rely totally on him. Now this story about Jesus being the only one who is able to meet all needs. You get that. But before a need is met, there's got to be a recognition that we can't meet the need. Only Jesus can. There's got to be that recognition There's got to be the recognition of a need before there can be a real turning to Jesus and go, can can you help with this? Do you see what we're saying? Sometimes Jesus gets us to the point in our lives where the only thing we can do is turn to him. He takes everything else away, like Elva was saying. How do we know what Jesus is thinking here? Because look in verse six. He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus knows what he's about to do, doesn't he? But he wants to make sure the disciples and the crowd see the total impossibility of what he's asking. This is important because this is often how Jesus works in believers' lives. So Jesus asked the question to Philip specifically, Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have just a little taste. You guys that are Nacho Libre, come on now. (laughs) Just, Just a little taste of the glory. See, a denarii is a day's wage For the average working man during this time. So to put that into more understandable terms. What they would have heard with this. Philip says Jesus just to give each person a little bit. Would cost eight months of salary. Maybe a year's worth of salary. Now see Philip does what I do a lot. And that is when Jesus says hey Paul I have this plan I want you to carry out like the plan to reach northern Colorado, plant a church like we did 12 years ago. And I want to reach northern Colorado through Bentry Church. And I look at at this massive task that uh, that task is and I calculate for Jesus just the the cost of doing uh, that just to make sure he understands how impossible it is. I explained to him that I'm a little church pastor, and I explained to Jesus all the obstacles he would face if he asked us to do that. And it's then Jesus says, uh, what do you have right now? And I say, I have a little church, and we have some really good staff, uh, and we but not many staff. We got some folks, and we got some, we got some folks, and, and I can preach a little bit, but Jesus, I have some real questions that will people actually follow me? Will people listen to me as I preach. Now, be clearly honest for you. I, I'm not making this up. Those are my doubts I wrestle with. Do you know that? Do you do that when Jesus asks you to do something? Do you explain the physical terms to Jesus of why something he's called you to do won't work because of the limits you see? That, that's Philip right here. Philip wants to explain to Jesus why feeding these people, it's impossible, Jesus. Nice try. Next thing. Now, the passage doesn't tell us, but I have this picture of Jesus slightly kind of smiling. Can't see with my beard, but I smile. (laughs) Smiling. I think he's smiling just a little bit. And that's Paul's interpretation. Clearly, this is impossible for two reasons. Now, there's simply no place to go to buy food. And second, if there were places to buy that much food, we don't have that kind of money in our bag right now, Jesus to pay for that. I don't know if you have done this, uh, but I have. That time that you tell Jesus why you can't do something for him, that he has clearly asked you to do. And on top of that, Jesus hasn't clued you in on what he might be thinking yet. And like you, you don't really have even, even a concept or an idea what Jesus wants you to do to address some problem he's asked you to to take care of. So so listen to what Andrew replies in verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, I can't tell what Andrew is thinking for sure, can you? On one hand, he might be thinking Hey, this is at least something to start with. Maybe he's thinking that. But what I think Andrew might be suggesting is the same thing as Philip. See, Jesus, it's hopeless. This is all we've got. See, this is all we have. Five loaves right here. Uh, We better go ahead and send them away. In either case, of what he's thinking, Andrew says, here's what we've got to work with Jesus. By the way, it's precisely at this point that Liberal, progressive pastors go off the rails theologically. Let me just warn you on this. One of their core beliefs is that there are no miracles. Everything they say that Jesus did in the Gospels that was a miracle must have been naturally explained away. In this case, they would say that the young boy's willingness to share his meager lunch motivated everyone else in the crowd to do the same with the food they had. And ultimately, the story is just about the virtue of sharing. And aren't we good inside us? Aren't we good? Baloney. That's, that's so wrong on, on so many levels and clearly not what scripture tells us, even slightly. Just a quick note here. Have you ever noticed something um, that links progressive, liberal, Christianity belief systems together? It's this. Whatever false doctrine they introduce us to is always designed to bring God's greatness down to a more human level and to lift up mankind's virtue. It's like they're saying, God's not really that great after all. But you know who is? (laughs) We are, we are. We're pretty good inside. By the way, who else does that? Satan <laughs> in the garden. Oh, you're pretty good. You don't need God. Now here's what you need to know: Barley bread is a poor man's bread. It was like the the ramen of the day. Anybody eat ramen? Yeah, yeah. We had ramen and spam when I was in college. That's broke food. Most people of the day ate wheat bread, barley bread is what poor people eat, and two fish either pickled or dried, kind of like a fish paste or a fish jerky. You know, either way, not exactly what you're looking for. Not a meal that would normally satisfy And check this out. Everyone is looking at Jesus. So in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down. The men numbered about five thousand. Jesus sits the table, as it were. He sets the table. So hang on right here. What does the scene remind you of as we look at this? Now think Old Testament. Remember, this is just before the Passover feast where all the Jews go to Jerusalem to celebrate what? The Passover celebrates the Jewish people being delivered from slavery in Egypt. God takes his people in the Old Testament in Exodus out into the wilderness, a desert really, where he provides for them. He gives them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. God provides water and even food for them. He delivers his bread from heaven. They call manna, manna," which literally uh, means what is it? I love that. It means what is it? The people of God were totally dependent of God. Uh, uh, the people of God were totally dependent on him in the desert. After the Passover. Six days a week God would provide manna, but on the sixth day they would gather enough for the Sabbath day. For forty years in the wilderness, God had provided food for his people every day. Look at this picture that John sets up here. This is this set up the meaning, this will set up the meaning for the, the entire mass of truth Jesus will deliver at the end of the chapter. So we need to pay attention. It's a picture of the failure of human resources, not only in the physical sense, like there's no food in the desert, right? There are no stores in the desert, not to mention there's no money uh, in the desert, and even if there were places to buy food. Uh, There's simply no food here for God's people. Talking Old Testament, they are depending on God. But what the people don't know yet, coming in Jesus' time, Jesus will point out later that these people are also hungry for God. They are spiritually starved, and it's why they have sought him out, and they don't even know why. Nothing in life has satisfied their longings, has it? Now, I want you to understand this is true of people right now. This is true of us here. People yearn for spiritual food to satisfy their longing for God. People yearn for spiritual food to satisfy their longing for God. They will try everything but God himself in order to fill the hunger. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, this is why we follow Jesus. This is why we believe right here. Because we had a longing for God that only Jesus met. Look at this. People yearn for spiritual food to satisfy their longing for God. They will try everything but God himself in order to fill the hunger. There's a reason for that. We'll get to it another time. But they simply don't know how to get to God. So they try everything else. This is at the heart of what sin Has led us to. Before we find life in Christ Jesus. As our Savior and Lord. We search for meaning in this world. Don't we? But outside of Christ. There is no fulfillment. We want purpose. We want meaning. We look for it anywhere we can find it. And tons of things in the world promise meaning. Family. Relationships. Love. Sex. Work. Money. Stuff, laughter, rest, vacations. In and of themselves, those things are not necessarily bad, are they? They're just created things. But when we find that there is no deep connection to God, we wonder what went wrong, why it didn't help. It's like we take created things in this world and we set them up as kind of like a mini-God. We say, give me meaning, work, work. Give me meaning, family. Give me meaning and whatever you want to put in there. Are you with me? When we don't find that connection, they can't deliver it. It can't deliver it. We look somewhere else and we move from idol to idol. Because of our sinful nature, we spiral down. We look for meaning in experiences of sin. I mean, sex is a leading one. Drugs and alcohol, simply all of those try to numb the pain. Well, it's only God that can fulfill that need in our heart. See, what we mean here is the, the only a connection to God in a relationship with God can satisfy our deepest desires. This is how we are made. We are made to be in a relationship with God. But because of original sin, our total depravity, and being born into sin, we have a way, a no way of connecting with God. He is spirit. We are flesh, physical. Now, that's what is so amazing about Jesus coming to earth to take on flesh. To step into our fallen world of temptation... But not to yield to sin. To take away the barrier of sin. And to bring us into the right relationship with God. So back to our story. Here we go. These people are sitting down in the wilderness. There's been a failure. There's no food. They're hungry. And once again God is going to provide food. For his people in the wilderness. His people are going to physically see Jesus provide food. Food for them in the desert. Now this is a sign John is showing us, and it's going to lead to a much bigger discussion and we 'll get to that at the in depth of who Jesus is later on in the chapter, but don't miss it here. Watch what happens physically that will lead later to the unpacking of what is happening spiritually. Verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus takes five loaves of barley. All eyes are on him as he picks them up and breaks them along with the fish up and starts handing them out. Remember, it's almost like a little stadium. It's on a 45 degree hillside. They can all see him. All the people are chowing down, but don't miss this. Oh, this is the best bread they've ever, were so hungry. We were hungry. Everyone sees what's happening. He just keeps breaking bread and passing it out. And they eat like I eat at a 10 meter buffet, freestyle. Now look at this. They eat until they're full. So we read in verse 12. When they were full, he told his disciples, "Collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted." So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the 5 barley loaves, so that they were left uh, so that were left over by those who had eaten. Now check that out. When they're done, the leftovers, 12 baskets. There's more leftovers than there was loaves and fish to begin with. Everyone sees that. By the way, the leftovers, 12 baskets. Why is that significant? There's there's enough for the 12 disciples to eat now. He hasn't left his disciples wanting either. He has provided for them. Here's the point I want us to see. John is telling us this. Jesus Christ is all-sufficient for every need, physically and spiritually. Jesus Christ is all-sufficient for every need, physically and spiritually. Some of you go, oh, yeah, yeah, what's the point? Brothers and sisters, this is the point right here. He's... All we need. Jesus has come through. Everybody's full. So there's the massive miracle right before people's eyes. Will they turn to Jesus as the son of God? Will they repent of their sins and turn to Jesus? Look at verse 14. When the people saw this sign, uh, this sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But it's not. Remember, these people have not believed he was the Son of God, but now they might. So let me clue you in on something here. Look at that phrase. This truly is the prophet who has come into the world. That comes right from the prophet Moses. God says to his people in Deuteronomy 18, back in the Old Testament, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words so that he speaks my name. The Hebrew people... The people of God had been waiting for this promised one of old. A prophet like Moses. But not Moses. So get this in your, your brain here. The people were coming to see Jesus because all the healing of the sick Jesus had done. They had wanted to see him do even more. And maybe they were even sick themselves. Or had brought a sick or lame family member and were hoping for healing. Then this miracle is so big, so massive in the amount of people that it actually touched. 20, 25,000 people, the sheer size of the amount of food needed. And it had happened right in front of their eyes. A light goes off, a warning bell sounds in their little heads. People start to rumor, back and forth murmur. And they go, they're talking to their neighbor there. Could this be a prophet? Could this be the prophet? It has to be. I don't know. A little roar begins to come up. Is this the one? He has to be. Did you see this? Now let me let you in on something that they would have known. And you will be in the dark on unless you were part of that society. Passover that all these people were traveling down to see was just a few days away, right? But the feeling of Passover and the preparation for Passover was a whole season. Kind of like seasons we have or we're getting ready to go into a holiday season, there was a celebration atmosphere surrounding going down to Jerusalem. We know from records outside the Bible that it was so big, the local officials were required by law to get the roads and the trails ready uh, to fix any potholes in the road because there's gonna be so many thousands of people traveling. What I'm saying is that Passover, Passover for many of the Jews was kind of like our Independence Day and Christmas rolled into one, only bigger. The Hebrews had been a proud people at one time with a powerful army and they were a leader, a superpower in the world. But at this point in Israel's history, they were defeated people living under harsh Roman rule and occupation. Now, when they realized That Jesus is the prophet promised of God that would come lead his people out of slavery. You see what they're thinking? God has come. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to make our nation great again. Everyone will be subject to us. Look what we get. The prophet has come. Look what he's going to do for us. On top of that, there's 20, 25,000 people, no small force in and of itself. They're thinking, let's take Jesus right now, right to Jerusalem, and make him king. If he can do miracles like this, it shouldn't be any problem for him to overthrow the Romans. These people are ready to make Jesus their king right there and then. But watch what Jesus does in verse 15. Therefore when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He simply slipped away. He simply walks away right past them and disappears into the mountains by himself, not with the disciples. Now, why doesn't Jesus take them up on the offer? Watch closely. You realize that this is the same offer, temptation that has already been made to Jesus, isn't it? To become king without having to go to the cross. Satan was tempting Jesus again. Right here. I can make you king. You don't have to do anything. I'll overthrow the Romans for you. Jesus simply walks away. Why? He's going to follow God, the Father's plans to the T, which would lead to the cross, his suffering, his death. No shortcuts. He's going to go and to destroy sin and death. But to do that, he will take his sacrifice of his life on the cross. It meant he would have to suffer. It meant he had to die. Now, don't miss this. All along the life of Jesus, there are countless temptations that he faced and yet never failed. He remained faithful and holy to what the Father had given him to do. Now I'm going, I'm dying to go on in the story, but there's just so much to cover. And still, just in this part of the story, we just kind of scratched the surface here. But here's what I want us to understand today. As we travel down to the Bent Tree discipleship pathway, as we are following Jesus as our leader, right? We believe he is the one. Amen? Amen. We are his. We are Christ followers. But there's always a danger. There's always a temptation to sin. And we we can find that danger of this By asking a simple set of questions. Watch this. Do we follow Jesus because we want Jesus? Or do we follow Jesus because we want what he can give us? You with me? Do we follow Jesus because we actually want Jesus? Or. Do we follow Jesus because we want what he can give us? These people, as they lay in the grass in awe of what Jesus has done and filling their stomachs with bread and fish, they're satisfied. This is an incredible miracle. They believe he was the Messiah, right? But what was the problem? They were still wanting the things of this world and they thought believing in Jesus could help them get what they needed and thus find meaning, find fulfillment. Do you get what I'm saying? As we follow Jesus, we have to ask ourselves this question regularly. It should be part of our daily prayer life, our daily repentance of sin. And Am I more interested in what Jesus can do for me or do I want Jesus? Do I want a relationship with Jesus? Because in the end, nothing else will co- complete us but a relationship with Jesus. I've asked the band to come up because I would just want to sing a little song for you that I learned many years ago. It's a song that's more than 150 years old, maybe 200 or more years old. No one knows for sure. It comes from our, our black brothers and sisters who were enslaved in the South. And they would sing this in the midst of their suffering. It communicates this deep need we have for the relationship with Jesus. It goes something like this. In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise Give me Jesus Give me Jesus Give me Jesus Jesus. You can have all this world but give me Jesus if you can stand sing with me it goes like this when I am alone and when I am alone and when I am alone Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. We all have a limited number of days when we will face the end. Will we face the end and say, I want to see Jesus or not? Sing this with me. And when I come to die And when I come to die when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. That you can have all this world, one more time. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentTreeChurch.com.